time in our service where we talk to God. And not only talk to God, but more importantly, listen to God. Let's pray. We will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. Our souls magnify the Lord. With our mouths we proclaim God's faithfulness to all generations. Our spirits rejoice in God our Savior. We declare that your steadfast love is established forever, O Lord. Your mercy is to those who fear you from generation to generation. God of promise, we so often place our trust in things we can see and touch and easily believe. But you did not ask us to believe in what is easy. You have asked us to believe what is true. Forgive us, forgive me, O Lord, when we doubt in the ways you work. Forgive us when we find it hard to believe an ancient story. Forgive us when we question how you chose to enter the world, born as one of us. Forgive our lack of faith and belief in ways which seem so impossible to believe. Help us to look in faith, open our belief, and set aside our doubts that you sent your Son, born of a virgin, the one who has come to set us free. In faith, we pray. In faith, we offer to you prayers for those in our community who need hope and help. Prayers for William, Pat, Eddie, Jan, Jack, John for his upcoming surgery this week, Ed in the death of his mother and all of their family, Christopher, a prayer that came from our community, the right community around us. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens, and we offer these prayers to you. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for helping us trust in your plans when so often, like David, we make our own. Help your ways be our ways and our thoughts be yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, amen. As we turn from our time of prayer to the time of the proclamation of God's word, we invite you to follow along today as I read our Advent text, which comes from the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. I'll be reading from chapter 7, verses one through 11. So keep your, keep your Bibles open there or your app open, and I'll turn to it. I, I, I usually read at the beginning of the sermons and sort of by habit. I started that again today, but I intended to do a little, um, some background information, and then I'll invite you to follow along as I read in just a minute. 
May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you've ever renovated or built a house, you know that it can be one of life's biggest stressors. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why people would rather watch someone else do a renovation on television rather than do it themselves. I remember, perhaps as some of you, when the only home improvement show was This Old House with Bob Vila. I did a little checking and it started back in 1979 on PBS. He would say things like, measure twice, cut once. Now there are more home improvement shows than you can watch in a day. Shows like Fixer Upper, Love It or List It, Property Brothers, House Hunters, My Lottery Dream Home, and one of my favorites, Flip or Flop. On Saturday mornings at the Lee House, we like to watch home garden television, HGTV, while we're fixing breakfast and while I sit down and look at the newspaper. And they're also sort of mindless TV at night when you're trying to wind down from a busy day. It's neat to watch other people work on their to-do lists when we can put ours on the back burner for just a few moments. And it's fun to watch someone else do their whole house or go way over budget in just 60 minutes. One of the aspects of these shows always seems to be that the house plans change. The flip will run into major expenses like asbestos removal or an underground oil tank and become a flop. And the dream home of today sometimes becomes the nightmare of tomorrow. The best made plans can turn out to be way different than anticipated. In today's Advent lesson from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, we join King David on the heels of many victories. He and his armies had conquered Jerusalem, defeated the Philistines, secured the Ark of the Covenant, and brought it back to Jerusalem while David sung and danced. In 2 Samuel 5, verse 11, the narrator tells us that a foreign king honored the newly thrown David and built David a palace in which to live. The passage says this, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, in the Hebrew it's Tzor, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had exalted him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Then David did what David was known to do. He took matters into his own hands. And we'll see this pattern continue throughout his life and his reign. He decided that God needed a dream home. This would be no fixer-upper in Waco, 
or Renault in Malibu. None of that would be good enough for God and the Ark of the Covenant. David wanted to build God a palace. David drew up house plans for God. But as we will see, God flipped David's house. And now we can read our passage today in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting there at verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house, and I love this. Just listen, can you can just hear it. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites... Did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And then verse 8. Now then, Nathan, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After verse 3, you see a shift in in the text. The first few verses, uh, David is having this idea that God needs a house, that God needs a palace, that he himself has been given this wonderful dwelling from another king who wanted to honor him, and now he's looking at what he has as opposed to this tent where God lives, and he has this idea, this plan. I think God needs a house now. And so Nathan says, hey, David, whatever you want, it's fine with me. And then you continue to see how the Lord speaks to the prophet Nathan and gives Nathan some instructions to David. 
Oh, no, God says, do you think I need a house? I've been living in a tent for all of these years, dwelling among my people. I don't need a fancy palace. And tells Nathan words of instruction for David to kind of set David straight. The narrator writes in verse 17, which is after the end of the passage I just read, Quote, Nathan the prophet reported to David all that God had said. And then David immediately prayed. The scripture says he immediately went to the Lord in prayer. He had a change of heart and he had an understanding that he would not build a house for God, but that God was building a house for him. It would seem to be a sweet gesture, but as with many parents who resist or resent their children telling them what to do and don't like it when they connive to reduce their independence, God pushes back and basically tells David to forget about the plans. God doesn't want to live in a house in David's backyard. God made his own plans known to David and flipped the house. The writer of Proverbs describes moments like this. In chapter 16, verse 9, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. The King James reads, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. You see, David knew that God had called and anointed him to be king of Judah and all Israel. But what David could not see nor comprehend was that God had entered into a covenant with David. God was establishing through David a line to the Messiah who would make his home among us. David had some grandiose plans for God's house, but all the while God had house plans, not only for David, but through David for all people. Maybe David was bargaining with God. I've done that. Maybe you've done that. Have you ever thought about why David wanted to build God a house in the first place? It's hard to know his motives, but we can speculate that maybe it was sort of like a quid pro quo thing in David's heart. If he does something for God, then maybe God would do something in return for him. This is not uncommon. People have always bargained with God. Just look back at Scripture. Abraham bargained with God to spare Sodom and his nephew. Jacob bargained with God during his wrestling match with God. Moses struck a deal with God to save all the Israelites after the golden calf incident. Jephthah, the judge, made a bargain that cost his daughter's life. Hannah bargained for a child. And when he was on his deathbed, King Hezekiah argued for some more time. People have always tried to appease deity. Quid pro quo. This for that. I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine, God. Maybe David was bargaining with God. Or... Maybe his motive was more benign than that. Maybe he just wanted to express his gratitude to God. 
God's hand had been on him since Samuel had anointed king, him king in the presence of his brothers and sisters. In fact, our text today, God reminds David of this very thing in verses 8 and 9. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. Expressing gratitude is a good thing. David was perhaps doing a good thing. Like most parents, God teaches his children to say please and thank you. Later, David would write, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Yes, it is a good thing to say thank you to God. But perhaps, perhaps David senses that, well, he needs to settle a debt with God. More than a thank you. Maybe a payback. Powerful men like David don't like to be indebted to someone, not even into their God. Perhaps this is happening here. We've paid our dues. We've done our service. Certainly, God could not expect more. We tend to think this way. If we've done no harm, we have been faithful to our spouse, volunteered for some nonprofits, been generous with our financials, never once kicked the cat, never evaded the IRS, never cursed. Well, what could God possibly say? It's like, we present an invoice to God, I think we're good, we're done, and then I can walk away. Whatever David's motives, God doesn't see it this way. God doesn't want a house, at least God doesn't want David's house. God makes it clear, he never asked for a house, he doesn't want a house. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. We've been moving around in tent the whole time. I've never wondered why you haven't built me a house of cedar, David. I think David was trying to manage God. I don't know about you, but I, I seem to try to do that. The one who builds the house is greater than the tenant of the house. You know, if you own rental properties, you have control and you have power. You can determine what the fees are, whether you're going to fix something or not. The tenant is often at the landlord's mercy. I wonder if there wasn't this element of power and control going on in David's mind. And God sees through David... David's going to try to make decisions for God, to keep God in his place. He's going to take care of God. He's going to put God somewhere so he'll always know where God is and what God is doing. He's going to try to please God as any child would try to please a parent by showing the parent that he has outstripped the parent and has advanced and gone beyond the parent. And God will have none of it and brings David's house plans to an abrupt halt. Although God would later approve plans for a temple to be built by his sons, David's sons, now he has a lesson to teach the king. Two lessons. One, God doesn't need to be sheltered. Perhaps this is why the tabernacle never had a roof. The tabernacle was the portable tent that traveled with the people throughout the wilderness as they worshiped God. The tabernacle never had a tent 
To put a roof on the structure would, would imply that God needed protection. That God is not much more than an idol made of wood or stone. No, we don't need to protect God in any way, shape, or form. We are not going to contain God. God doesn't need to be sheltered. And then the second lesson, God doesn't need to be assisted with God's living arrangements. God reminds David that he has never uttered a complaint about the tabernacle. God has never expressed dissatisfaction with his, quote, house. God doesn't need his children telling him what to do. He's fine, thank you very much. And God would not permit David the satisfaction of feeling like he's helping God. He's giving God a hand, lending assistance for someone else who can no longer do things for himself. And God flips David's house plans. God tells David that although David cannot and will not build a house of God, God will build a house for him. The Lord declares, and this is in verse 11 of chapter 7, that the Lord will make a house for you. And that house that God would build for David is not a house of cedar, marble, or precious stones. Such a house that no matter how well built is still subject to decay and destruction. No, God is going to build a dynasty. It's a house that will last eternally. God uses the word forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this brings us to Advent, where we're only a few days from the day we celebrate the coming of the final ruler, the last and eternal sovereign, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who is of the royal house of David, the royal line of David. And the angel Gabriel says to Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And now God, who rejected David's plans for a house, settles into a house. But it's an entirely different order. It's a house of flesh and bone. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul writes that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Here in the manger, God is in His house, this human house this child all for us. Everything in the name of this child suggests that God has amazing and saving plans for us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Jesus, savior, Messiah, the anointed one. And as God tells David in the text, this throne is established forever and God is preparing a place for us even now an eternal place where Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house there are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And the psalmist who said, David, likely writing, Surely your goodness and love shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Centuries later, James, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. In the midst of this remarkable experience, when uh, Jesus is transformed into a vision of dazzling glory, and there appear with him Elijah and Moses, Peter comes out with one of the most short-sighted statements of all time. He offers to build shelters, tabernacles, houses for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And Jesus says the same kind of thing to Peter as God said to David. So often, we are much like Peter, much like David. We're so busy doing the things we want to do, the things that are important to us, that we miss what God is telling us plainly. We strive to build a house for a God who prefers a tent. But God continues to flip the house. The truly lasting achievement is not what we build for God, but what God builds in us. Just like you heard Matthew say in the children's sermon through grace given beyond our deserving. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So the question is this. Have we been gathering loads of cedar wood and expensive marble, laying stone upon stone to build a life which is all about success and security? only to find that the place set aside for God is empty, deserted? If so, it may be time to set out in the wilderness to find the place where God challenges us to take some risks. God may reject the ornate temples we build, but God will never reject us. Sisters and brothers, may we set aside our blueprints our tools, our block, and take to the road as pilgrims, we find our Lord is there, walking beside us every step of the way. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Amen.